This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from markfiore.com, The Progressive, The Majority Report, Jim Hightower, MSNBC, The Colbert Report, Real Time with Bill Maher, and The Rachel Maddow Show with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from the Tom Hartman program. It's really called doing whatever you've always wanted to do anyways. <laughs> Thanks to that mean old deficit, which is really nice. See, it works like this. I hate broccoli. Ugh. So, in order to save money, I propose a broccoli budget cutting repair bill, which will wipe broccoli from the face of the earth. And I'll never have to buy broccoli again. And if the Democrats don't like it and try to stop me, I'll threaten to shut down the government. Ooh, just like a grown-up. <laughs> well, you can do this with broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and homework. Or teachers, regulation, and head start. If you don't like it and have always wanted it gone, cut it. <laughs> and blame it on fiscal responsibility or some other grown-up sounding words. <laughs> it's like getting a note from your mom who weighs 14 trillion dollars. <laughs> so, after Republicans pass the Shut Up and Work Big Businesses in Charge Act, I'm going to be fiscally responsible by passing the Ponies for Susie Priority Spending and Deficit Reduction Bill. And that's what I learned about budget cutting the end. One of the awful things about the economy is how slow the unemployment rate is dropping. Right now it's still at 8.8%. That's 13.5 million people officially unemployed with millions more discouraged or underemployed. Companies remain stingy when it comes to hiring, choosing instead to squeeze more and more productivity out of fewer and fewer workers. That's great for profits, but not for people who need a job. And in the midst of this distressing trend, some Republican governors, rather than extending unemployment insurance, are actually cutting it. Missouri is even turning down money from the Obama administration to extend benefits to its own unemployed. In Arkansas, Michigan, and Florida, Republicans are planning on cutting the number of weeks available. Michigan, so hard hit by the recession, is amazingly planning on reducing unemployment compensation next year from 26 weeks down to 20 weeks. This is a level of callousness matched only by the Republicans' assault on public sector workers. But as you can see, it's an across-the-board offensive. And as Warren Buffett has pointed out, there's class warfare, all right, but it's my class, the rich class, that's making the war, and we're winning it. Smart guy, that Warren Buffett. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. A working-class hero is something to be A working-class hero is something to be They hurt you at home and they hit you at school 
They hate you if you're clever And they despise a fool Till you're so fucking crazy You can't follow their rules There, There's simply a class war going on here And uh, any means in which The rich and the financiers can be held to account. You notice that, you know, uh, Mujay started off talking about how uh, Lehman Brothers couldn't get any U.S. attorneys to sign off on, on what they were doing. And it wasn't just the idea or the notion that they were afraid of criminal prosecutions. They're afraid of trial lawyers coming after them uh, because on behalf of plaintiffs who were getting ripped off. And so they had to get European attorneys to sign off on them. And this is, you know, this is what I say all the time. I mean, you know, particularly through the Bush administration, but in many respects, uh, even under this administration, particularly when we have the Republicans hell-bent on destroying entities like the EPA to the extent that the EPA is effective, uh, the only other way to curb the behavior of corporations is the constant, never-ending threat that when they make that economic opportunity cost calculation in their boardroom, how much will we have to pay if we don't recall that car that blows up and kills a couple of people? How much will we have to pay? Is it more than actually fixing that problem? And if the answer is yes, they will fix the problem. If the answer is no, they won't fix the problem. That's it. That's the calculation. There's no like, well, wait a second. There's people in that car that could die. They have a family. No, 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 no. Each one of those people that they anticipate would die in that accident because the back of the car will blow up has a dollar figure attached to them. That dollar figure is a function of how hard trial lawyers go after these companies for hurting consumers, hurting workers. At this point, the consumers are investors and pension funds and across the board, uh, those of us who had some type of stake in the financial stability of this country. And, of course, the other way that we... We gain protection, we gain political and economic power in this country if we are not a multimillionaire. It's through unions. Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, uh, Hacker was on this show very early on in his, uh, uh, talking about his book, Winner Take All Politics. I would uh, recommend you go back and check that out. You can always find it at the searchmajority.fm. He talks about, um, how organized labor was on the front lines during the struggle for universal health care, for the fight of Medicare for the aged. They were the main champions of organizing rights for workers and of the gra gradual transformation of Social Security into a strong foundation for a dignified retirement. Unions even lent, he's talking about the political power of unions here. He's talking about what is going on in this country when they attack unions. It has nothing to do with budgets. It has to do with stripping working people. Not just, you know, 60, 70% of the country of their political power, of one of their sources of political power. 
Unions lent crucial support to the civil rights movement, leading one congressional champion, Missouri Democrat Richard Bolling, to later observe, we would have never passed the Civil Rights Act without labor. They had the muscle. The other civil rights groups did not. Decades of research have shown that the economic pyramid is flatter in countries where unions are stronger. In other words, there's less uh, financial disparity, less income disparity. In economies as different as Canada and Germany, a sturdy union presence has helped reduce income inequality. The reason isn't just that unions defend their members. They also create changes in social norms, such as pressures for non-union employers to match union gains. Recent study by the sociologists Bruce Western and Jake Rosenfeld suggests that including these indirect effects, labor's de decline may account for as much as a third of the rise in American wage inequality since the 1970s. At least a third, probably the other two-thirds, would be tax policy in this country. Unions also push for broad federal policies that reduce gaps in income and wealth. They've been one of the few organized voices that have consistently pressed back against a string of tax cut bills for the rich that began in the late 1970s. Meanwhile, groups representing the affluent have only grown stronger. In the early 1970s, corporations organized on an unprecedented scale to reshape policy and debate. Almost overnight, they expanded their already formidable presence in Washington, forging bonds with wealthy donors promoting business-friendly ideas. This emboldened conservatives while creating powerful conflicts for a Democratic Party increasingly torn between corporate money and its historical electoral connection to the little guy. In more than a generation, the richest 0.1%, 0.1%, 10th of 1%, 0.1%, of taxpayers saw their slice of the national income, including capital gains, increase from less than 3% to more than 12%. You understand that one-tenth of 1% controls 12% of the money in this country. Perhaps the most destructive legacy was the expansion of the reckless practices on Wall Street. And so, and he goes on to say that some unions have problems. Unions have problems, and I would agree with that. He writes, they've been much slower to change undesirable features of union contracts, such as policies that overemphasize seniority and protect poorly performing workers. Still, just as we wouldn't block entrepreneurs from forming corporations because some firms pollute or engage in financial fraud, we should not radically undermine the rights of Americans and unions just because some hinder effective response to economic and policy challenges. Do some union practices need reform? Yes like every single thing else in the world. Without the poor, the rich will die. Remember this, remember this. So they will grant a small supply to keep the poor working. For work they will and work they must. Remember this, remember this. Or else the air will turn to dust. Their children and their children will dream breathless dreams. Remember this, remember this to run the same corrupt machine that enslaved their parents.
I recently joined hundreds of Texans in a Day of the Fallen protest. Leading our march to the state capitol were people bearing 138 black coffins. This was not a war protest, not in the sense of a shooting war, but it was a protest about the senseless casualties in America's relentless class war. The caskets symbolized the 138 Texas construction workers who died on the job in 2009. This is a national issue, but my state, hailed by our governor as business-friendly, is number one in the nation in the business of killing and maiming those who dig our trenches, erect our condos, wire our office buildings, roof our houses, and otherwise put themselves on the line to construct and maintain a modern city. Another construction worker dies every two and a half days in Texas. Needlessly. Here and elsewhere around the country, corporate chieftains and political leaders simply avert their eyes from this routine mayhem. You never find a CEO or governor at the funerals. And since they will themselves not to see the problems, they do nothing to fix them. In Texas, builders and contractors are not even required to provide basic safety training and equipment, carry workers' compensation insurance, or allow rest breaks. Working 8 to 12 hours or more a day in 100-degree heat is inherently dangerous, and with no precautions or breaks, injuries and deaths are inevitable. Bear in mind that these corporations are profitable. They certainly can afford to give workers a couple of 10-minute breaks in an 8-hour shift. This is Jim Hightower saying, Imagine the urgent cry for reform if construction company CEOs were being killed at the rate of one every two and a half days. It's time to put some ethics back in the work ethic. To help, contact the National Organization of Injured Workers at www.noiw.org. Ain't feeling what you pay Cross your fucking ass out You're a number on a page It's too big to fail To stop treading on us Keep the bottom line high Give a minimum wage A hypocritical politician Will never regulate Understand every campaign's funded by the banks Every single human being Has a certain common trait Throw a stack of money down And watch the pupils dilate All the same motherfuckers Talking about the free market Glad to take a tax dollar Stop the fat ass pockets We got socialism for the rich bootstraps for the poor first priority is that the fat cats profit so we said let's get that black man of the people in office unspoiled not yet corrupted he ain't having it and just how quick can the poison seep in as soon as goldman sachs and Merrill Lynch can infiltrate the cabinet let me just give you a notion of uh what we're facing in this country in terms of rich versus poor report finds that 20 percent of californians struggled to feed their families in 2010 just over 20% of California respondents answered yes to the question, have there been times in the past 12 months when you didn't have enough money to buy food that you or your family needed? That places the state at number 16 in the nation for food hardship. The highest rate was recorded in Mississippi, where nearly 28% that said they did not always have enough money to buy food. The lowest rate, just over 10%, was in North Dakota. 60 Minutes did a piece on, uh, what is this, in, from Florida? Yes. Some kids in Florida going to school. This is a devastating piece, and uh, we'll link to it on the blog at Majority FM. Avant, we'll get it in the roundup. Maybe we'll put it on the uh, Tumblr site. I'm going to play you two clips. Uh, this is just incredibly heartbreaking. This is before austerity measures that are not only going to destroy our economy even more, 
not only going to reduce jobs in this country, but are going to cut away to the bone the safety net for kids like this. Let's play the intro from this first. Unemployment improved a bit last month, but it's still nearly 9%. And the trouble is, job creation is so slow, it will be years before we get back the 7.5 million jobs lost in the Great Recession. American families have been falling out of the middle class in record numbers. The combination of lost jobs and millions of foreclosures means a lot of folks are homeless and hungry for the first time in their lives. One of the consequences of the recession that you don't hear much about is the record number of children descending into poverty. The government considers a family of four to be impoverished if they take in less than $22,000 a year. Based on that standard and government projections of unemployment, it is estimated the poverty rate for kids in this country will soon hit 25%. Those children would be the largest American generation to be raised in hard times since the Great Depression. Do you remember, I think there was some uh, time ago, I referenced an article that I found, I think, through John Walker at Fire Dog Lake. Uh, I think it was in Steep Magazine. I'm not sure. S-T-E-E-P. And it was a uh, study that was done, I think, by Harvard researchers, which they had tested la uh, lab rats. And they tried to measure the implications of stress for young rats. And the, one of the most stressful things that a rat apparently can go through when they're a child is to be separated from their mother. And they found that in these tests and separating them from the mother, that not only did these young rats suffer tremendous stress at that moment, but their brains developed in such a way that they had an incapacity to deal with stress as they got older. The scars from that stress at that age affected them for the rest of their lives. It made them less able to deal with situations as they got older. I want you to contemplate when you hear the next clip from that 60 Minutes. This is when Scott Pelley sits down with the, the class of 25 kids and starts asking them, how many of you have gone to bed hungry? Something like 80% of the kids raise their head. These are the, this is a clip that they played of uh, the kids discussing uh, their situation. Uh, it's like. This is pretty heartbreaking. It's like hard, you can't sleep, you just like wait, you just go to sleep for like five minutes and you wake up again and your like stomach hurts and you're thinking I can't sleep, I'm going to try and sleep, I'm going to try and sleep, but you can't because cause like your, st your stomach's hurting and it's because it doesn't have any food in it. And it's like a black hole and sometimes when I don't eat my stomach you can hear like it, it's like growling, you can hear it. Usually we eat macaroni or we don't or we drink water or tea. My mom will sometimes like make food and then she won't have enough so um at night we'll just eat cereal or something. Other times my parents will fight about money because they don't have enough money to pay the food. 
we have to sometimes take food from a church. It's hard because my grandmother's also out of work and we usually get some food from her. It's kind of embarrassing because the next day you go to school um, asking kids if they want this or if they want that. If they have cereal and they haven't opened it yet, you go ask them if they want their cereal. And yet in this country, the debate is about how much money are we going to cut from programs that feed these kids. Not whether or not we're going to, how much. This country is not broke. This country is in no danger of going broke. And yet, to finance the tax cuts for millionaires, we are raising a generation of kids, 25%, living in poverty. And shitheads like Alan Simpson have the audacity to tell us this is about our grandkids. I tweeted out a uh, chart, breakdown, programs at risk for these uh, budget cuts versus tax breaks for the wealthy. $11.2 billion from early childhood programs. $11.5 billion the per-year cost of recent tax cuts for millionaires' estates. $8.9 billion, low-income housing programs. $8.9 billion, cost of allowing mortgage interest deduction for vacation homes. $7.6 billion, supplemental nutrition for poor families, otherwise known as WIC. It's pregnant women. $6.7 billion, the cost of estate planning techniques used by wealthy to avoid taxes. $4.6 billion, teacher training and after-school programs. $5.2 billion, the cost of re removing limit on itemized deduction for high-income taxpayers for the year 2011. $4.1 billion, job training for unemployed workers and new workers. $4.1 billion, cost of tax breaks for offshore operations of U.S. financial companies. 2.5 billion low income energy energy assistance grants to poor families 2.5 billion tax breaks for oil companies those are write offs for drilling and oil well costs in the fiscal year 2012 2.5 billion community health centers 4.9 billion the cost of extending alcohol fuel tax breaks 2.0 billion homeless assistance grants 2.3 billion tax loophole for managers of hedge funds and private equity funds in the fiscal year 2012. 420 million legal services for the poor. 312 million the cost of allowing companies to write off punitive damages over the course of 10 years. 317 million the Title X family planning. 303 million cost of special tax breaks for timber industry. 44 billion all programs at risk combined 42 billion is the one year cost of extending the bush tax cuts for the top brackets in fiscal year 2012 
I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. I want to talk a little bit about how the Republican ideas for fixing the deficit are a joke. I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to prove it to you. We've got numbers for you here, as we always do. First, let's start with their uh, big proposal that the Democrats have uh, accepted for the moment being. There's a two-week extension. They have cut $4 billion. And I would say to that, big whoop de doo Now, let me tell you what they could have cut. They could have cut $46.2 billion over 10 years for oil subsidies. But you know what? They just had a vote on it earlier this week, actually, to cut $30 billion worth of oil subsidies. Now, you want to guess how many Republicans voted in favor of cutting oil subsidies in the House? Zero. You don't need a graphic on that one. None of them voted for it. So they're like, oh, we got $4 billion. We're feeling good. Oh, no, no, $30 billion? Go ahead and give it over to the oil companies. Okay? You see how the priorities work. Now, look, let's look at uh, in another uh, area here, which is... Uh, the tax cuts. They just did a deal on that, of course, at the end of last year. The Obama administration and the Republicans. How much did that cost us? Well, just over two years, $800 billion. So they give all this money in tax cuts, and then they go, oh, we've got to cut you. We've got to cut the middle class. We've got to cut for the average worker. We've got to cut all of your stuff. Uh, I'm sorry, we already gave it away. Look, let's look at just tax cuts for the top 2%. I get a load of these numbers. If you just took them away for, in that same two-year time period, $91 billion that you can save if you uh, just stop the Bush tax cuts for the top 2%, then you've got $23 billion in the state tax, and you've got $40 billion in the capital gains if it was just raised to 20%, which I don't think is nearly high enough. But if you add all those up, you would have saved $154 billion. Now, that's what you would have done if you actually cared about balancing the budget like I do. But apparently, Republicans don't care about that at all. At all. So when they say they're uh, deficit hawks, not true. When they say they want to balance the budget, not even close to true. Fiscally conservative, please don't make me laugh. I'll give you one set of numbers uh, eh, eh, more, okay? Because I want to get, get, get even further into this. So... The Republicans say, hey, you know what? Uh, we're going to cut $61 billion overall. Now, that's, of course, a non-defense discretionary spending. Now, the total deficit is $1.1 trillion, so that's still a drop in the bucket. But to give you a sense of perspective, you know what it is uh, if you cut all of non-defense discretionary spending from the 2012 budget? All of it. We spend $0 outside of defense. You cut $610 billion and you're still nowhere near balancing the budget. 
You know why? Because you've got to look at the other side of the ledger. You also have to raise revenue. If you don't raise revenue, you're never, ever, ever going to be able to balance it, even if you cut everything to zero outside of defense and entitlements, what they call entitlements. Now do you understand the math? Uh, Jake, excellent point. I want to play tag team with you because you've totally identified the near-term hoax of the Republican plans. What's got me riled up is the long-term plan, too, because Paul Ryan, who's like the Republican it boy, supposed to be the fiscal conservative who's going to bring in a new era of fiscal conservatism, no one looks at his actual long-term plan, the so-called roadmap. It doesn't balance the budget until the 2060s. It adds $62 trillion to the debt between now and then. I, I took out my calculator and figured it out myself. And the reason is precisely the point you made. He says we can keep taxes at their historic levels, even as we double the number of people on Social Security and Medicare. His own numbers prove that's a hoax, just briefly. And absolutely, one last thing on it is, look, if you bring the tax cuts or the tax levels back to where they were under Clinton, we created 22 million jobs. It works for the economy anyway. Let's just be sane about it. Last night, I talked to you about the plight of America's middle class. Traditionally, they have come from America's industrial sector. But last year, less than 12 million Americans worked in manufacturing, and the United States ran up a trade deficit of $497 billion. Though I don't completely trust those numbers, since all our calculators are now made in China. <laughs> In fact, America hasn't had a trade surplus since 1975. We have never recovered from the collapse of our disco ball industry. <laughs> and it may shock you to learn that one of America's top three exports is scrap and trash. <laughs> and those aren't just the nicknames of Charlie Sheen's live-in girlfriends. Seem like love young ladies. Now actual, I'm talking actual scrap and trash. Things are looking bleak nation. But there is a clear path to recovery. And it brings us to tonight's word. Economic boom. Folks, we know we've got to get our deficit under control. And I have to admit, there have been some good starts. Democrats and Republicans both agree on cutting useless stuff like $22 million from special education, $103 million from FEMA, and $2.5 billion from home heating assistance for the poor. Hey, it's almost spring, and with global warming, this might be the last winter. But in their haste to balance the budget, some are going too far. I really am pleading with you, please. Reduce spending. Reduce it in the defense budget. There's plenty to cut within the, the defense budget. We will have to look long and hard at the military budget. No! <laughs> defense is how we're going to grow our way out of this thing. A country has to sell what it's good at. 
That's why Russia exports vodka, Germany exports cars, and Sweden exports cheap furniture that becomes our scrap and trash. <laughs> America, folks. And we know America still makes something that the world wants. We make weapons. And the world cannot wait to get its fingers on our triggers. Recent weapon sales have included a $3.3 billion order from the United Arab Emirates, a pending $4 billion aircraft deal with India, and an arms package worth some $60 billion, including 70 Apache attack helicopters and a fleet of F-15s to Saudi Arabia. And the best part is, the F-15 is obsolete. <laughs> Folks. Military has not bought a new F-15 since 2001. It's like the Saudis gave us 60 billion dollars for a boatload of VCRs. <laughs> and our firearm fire sale has gotten a lot of free press lately. The U.S. has sold billions of dollars, fighter jets, missiles, weapons to the Egyptian military. Americans arranged for uh, General Dynamics to sell helicopters to go to Muammar Gaddafi. The label on the tear gas canister that's being shot at them is made in the USA. Made in the USA, baby. Products built to last. <laughs> Keep in mind, defense industry employs over 600,000 people. These are American jobs in American factories, making American instruments of destruction that are as American as napalm pie. So, it is so important. We cannot cut defense because developing, building, and selling weapons is a perpetual money-making machine. You see, we give the Defense Department billions to develop new weapons to protect us from potential enemies. A few years later, we sell those weapons to countries all over the world, including potential enemies. Then we have no choice but to manufacture newer, better weapons to protect ourselves from what we just sold. You know, that reminds me. This year's defense budget was only $725 billion. That's not nearly enough. I hear Saudi Arabia has F-15s now. They're going to use them to come after our strategic reserve of scrap and trash. <laughs> so, Washington, go ahead, cut spending for Social Security, cut spending for Medicare, cut it for anything. Just leave defense spending alone. Because we know that if we focus all our resources on things that explode, so will our economy. We've been on the run, driving in the sun, looking out for number one. California, here we come, right back where we started from. Well, hustlers, grab your guns, your shadow weighs a ton, driving down the 101. California, here we come, right back where we started from. California. First up, he is a former real-time real reporter who is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and author of Griftopia. Our friend Matt Taibbi is here. Hey, Polly. How you doing? Good to see you. 
Okay. Well, um, this is the new issue of Rolling Stone. I love you. You're writing in Rolling Stone, and uh, your article, uh, "How Wall Street Crooks Evaded Jail." Why they didn't go to jail? Um, I didn't read it because I have Bieber fever, and I, I, I only read about. So, why don't you tell me why? Just sum it up, because reading is so tedious. I know, now. I know, it's so hard. All those words in a row. If it's not more than 140 characters, I really can't be bothered. But why? Why didn't Wall Street go to jail? Because when we were kids, you know, people like Ivan Bosky and Michael Milken in the last financial scandal, they went to jail, Actually, but nobody went, to, went jail. to jail this time. Right. Um, well, I think the simplest way to answer that is with uh, a rhetorical question. Uh, I mean, how much drug enforcement do you think there would be in this country if every top-ranking narc in the country had a $2 million a year job waiting for him with the local drug dealer after he left government service? And that's basically the situation we have that, now. That's like what goes on in Mexico. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that, yeah. Right. Well, uh, first answer, why do they belong in jail? I think some people don't even think they do. Well, the... All the banks were broadly involved in a criminal fraud scheme that involved selling mismarked mortgage-backed securities. These were toxic, crappy subprime mortgages that they were waving a bunch of phony baloney math over and then selling them off to pension funds and insurance companies and banks in China and, and Holland as AAA-rated securities. It's Iceland. Iceland, Remember exactly. Iceland fell. It's, the, it's a, it's a street drug scam. It's selling oregano as weed. That's basically what they were doing <laughs> on a massive, massive scale. What, what? Billions and billions of dollars. Why do I feel you prepared that analogy just for me? <laughs> and then, if you were like, I'd meet the press, you wouldn't say that. I, I, but, but I, I read, you know, you, you, you said one congressional aide said if uh, Lloyd Blankfeld is a... Blankfein. Blankfein. Right. I get the Jews mixed up. <laughs> but... Um, he said, I didn't he said, say that. He said if, if Lloyd Blankfein uh, had one pound me in the ass for six months prison term, right. all this bullshit would end. Yeah, that's, exa that's exactly what he said. Put Lloyd Blankfein and pound me in the ass jail for six months... And all of this Wall Street stuff would, would stop, basically. But they wouldn't really go to the pound minute. No, they'd go to yeah. some country club resort right. with racquetball and all That's that. That's yeah, right. There's exactly. no pounding in the ass. But, I mean, the they, they, go to <laughs> they, don't even go, they don't even go to the nice jails. They don't, right. they don't go to the, the only person who went to jail in this entire crisis was Bernie Madoff. And he really didn't have anything to do with this crisis. He was just a run-of-the-mill con man who could have existed at any time. Right. Uh, that's interesting, because I saw, uh, I was watching the CBS Evening News, here and, and Katie Couric said, uh, I think she used the phrase, the greatest financial fraud in the history of the United <laughs> States. And I thought, boy, I bet you Matt would take issue with that right. description. Not close to the greatest financial fraud, right? No, I mean, even the, his colleagues in the, in the financial services industry far outdid Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff was just doing an age-old Ponzi scheme, which was, you know, invented right. back in the 20s. This is, this is old hat. The other guys on Wall Street were doing it on a much, much bigger scale uh, and were affecting far more people. Right. I mean, your article on Goldman Sachs, you were, I'm going to quote this, which has been quoted everywhere. I've re read this quote. I mean, when you wrote this, you must have known you wrote a, you wrote a hit. <laughs> like when Paul McCartney I woke up and he, he just wrote yesterday <laughs> but you said Goldman Sachs the world's most powerful investment bank you know this is a great vampire squid vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money <laughs> so that, 
I mean, you, you can't know. It's, it's, uh, it's... And, and there is such a thing as a vampire squid? There is, actually. I, I it's a very gentle and, and, and kind little animal about this big. And a lot of... I actually got letters from So this is not fair to vampires. It's, it's, it's libelous against the squid, yeah. That is so wrong. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was watching this... Uh, Mubarak situation going down this week. They say they're trying to get his the money that he looted from Egypt and that he put it probably in Swiss banks. But now the Swiss banks have frozen his assets. And I right. thought, he should have put it in Goldman Sachs. Right, right. And I thought, you know, everybody's in this country is like, oh, those primitive Arabs, they loot each other. But, <laughs> you know, they might get that money back from Mubarak. But the people who looted us got away scot-free. It's, it's amazing. There are a million people in foreclosure in this country, and the guys who sold them those predatory loans are like still living like Pablo Escobar. I mean, right. they, they got to keep all of that money. In the worst-case scenario, you know, Angelo Mozillo from Countrywide, he was the only guy who really got punished from that, from that whole universe, and he got to keep three-quarters of his net worth. So, you know, crime does pay in this country. So who are, the, who are the Mubarak-level looters that you would say? I mean, I'd like you to mention the guy from Lehman Brothers, because as the audience knows, I had most of my savings in Lehman Brothers. And right. I never miss an opportunity to look straight in the camera and go, thanks, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, that guy's name was Dick Fold, Dick right? Fold. The Dick gorilla they called. Dick Fold. Yep. <laughs> what a Dick Fold. <laughs> And I read he 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 he's worth over five hundred million. Five hundred million, yeah. Five hundred million. He got away with. Right. He cashed out because he probably knew that something was going on, and he told happy investors like you that everything was cool, and you kept your money with Lehman Brothers, and that's how they do, you know. And what about Alan Greenspan? You're a big fan. Uh, and actually, in my book, I have a whole chapter <laughs> entitled "The Biggest Asshole in the Universe." Uh, <laughs> About Alan Greenspan, look, the Fed plays an enormous role. Alan Greenspan played a huge role in, in the in the bubbles that went on in the, the tech bubble in the '90s, the mortgage right. bubble that we just went through. Basically, every time Wall Street screws up, they get to go back to the Fed and borrow a whole bunch of money for free uh, and start the game all over again. These guys get to go to the Fed and borrow money at zero, and then they lend it out to us at five, ten. I mean, how much are you paying for your credit card? Twenty percent. Uh, and that's free money. It's essentially a giant subsidy system. And then, you know, they blame the teachers' union. Exactly. You know, it's all, it's all a math teacher in Kenosha who's making right. thirty-five grand a year. Right. Why, why can't people see through this? I mean, I know people are dumb. <laughs> but there's got to be something more to it than that. I mean, it's just, it seems... It, it's, in that particular instance, it's unbelievable that people can't connect the dots. You know, the, these pension funds that these state workers have, these were, these were the people who were the victims of this mortgage-backed security scheme. These were the places where these banks were selling these toxic subprime mortgages that eventually blew up. The pension funds lost all their money. Now the states have to pay these pensions, and they're broke, and they're blaming the teachers. They're blaming the firemen. They're blaming the policemen, when in fact they were all defrauded by these banks on Wall Street. Just as I thought it was going all right, I find that I'm wrong when I thought it was right. It's always the same, it's just a shame, that's all.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. What you're looking at here um, is not Wisconsin. This is video from Indianapolis today. Protesters in that traditionally pretty conservative state rallied today under the banner Hoosiers standing up for the middle class. Thousands of people turned out at the state capitol in Indianapolis today to protest against not only union stripping measures that Indiana Republicans introduced last month, but also efforts by Republicans to shift a massive amount of public school resources into private hands. That's going on in Indiana. Now this, this is Wisconsin. This was the scene at the Wisconsin State Capitol today. Thousands of people gathered again to protest the biggest rolling back of workers' rights in that state in the state's history. Last night, in the blink of an eye, Republicans in the Wisconsin Senate wiped away most union rights for most of the state's public employees. Today, Republicans in the state assembly did the same over the loud and vocal protests of those who had gathered outside the chamber, as well as the Democratic representatives inside the chamber. We think what's happening in this building is what's ruining Wisconsin when we completely ignore this institution and our rules and the laws then democracy is completely melted down. We have a 50-year tradition of collective bargaining and in four weeks we are having people say no this proposal ought to be adopted. We are fighting for the people's rights. You know, everybody just take a second. Listen. I don't have to say anything. Listen to what's going on out here. This is a stain on our democracy. It is a stain. It is a stain so deep, I don't know if it can ever be clean. Despite the protests both inside and outside the Capitol, the Republican union stripping measure in Wisconsin passed today. Republican Governor Scott Walker has pledged to sign it into law as soon as possible. Wisconsin has been the focal point for the country these past three weeks for good reason. In part, that's because the National Republican Party put the spotlight on the Wisconsin fight as the symbol of what the Republican Party nationally stands for now. But this fight and the pushback against it is actually happening now all over the country. These are images today from, from Boise, Idaho, of all places, where some union rights for teachers were stripped away this week by that state's Republican-led legislature. These are images from Columbus, Ohio, where thousands gathered in protest over the last few weeks against Republican-led efforts, efforts there 
to strip away union rights. These are images from Lansing, Michigan. The state capitol in Lansing reportedly saw its largest protests ever this week against union stripping measures and dramatic new unilateral powers being claimed by the state's Republican administration. In Michigan, they are expecting their, their, their biggest protest yet on Tuesday of next week. Who has called for the Tuesday protest in Lansing? The AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons. That's because part of what Republican Governor Rick Snyder is trying to do in Michigan is a massive transfer of wealth. He and the state's Republicans want to raise $1.7 billion by taxing poor people and old people, and also by taxing people who want to make donations to support public schools. From those groups, they are going to extract an extra $1.7 billion. But then they will not be applying that money to fix the state's budget. They will be giving that money away to businesses, a $1.8 billion corporate tax break, taxing the old and the poor in order to give that money to corporations. A spokesman for the AARP in Michigan telling the Detroit News today that seniors are willing to do their share, but they don't want to pay for a business tax cut. He accurately called what's going on in Michigan not a cut, but rather a shift. And that's exactly right, and that's important. What they are doing in Michigan with this particular tax hike will not make that state's budget deficit any better. It just shifts resources from one group of humans, old people and poor people, to corporations. It's just a shift of the resources that the state has control over. As you might imagine, this is not a popular kind of idea. Now, Florida is doing the same kind of shift with their schools, cutting hundreds of millions of dollars out of their K-12 education, not to pay down the state's budget deficit, but in order to give that money away to businesses. The money saved by sticking it to the school kids will be given away as a corporate and property tax break, and the state's deficit will stay as is, roughly. Shifting resources like this, shifting resources like this, reallocating resources, reallocating money from the poor, from kids, from old people, to businesses is not a very popular idea. There is a reason that people don't run for office by saying that's what they're going to do. Whether you're just looking at the protests or whether you're just looking at the polls, policies that hurt the great majority of people who work for a living in order to benefit a tiny corporate class, that creates two numerically unbalanced sides in your political debate. A lot of people get hurt so a few people can benefit. Nobody runs a campaign saying they're going to do something like that. Nobody runs a campaign saying, I will raise taxes on the poor and cut their services so a comparatively tiny number of rich people can do even better than they're already doing. I mean, think about if you're, what, what would your campaign slogan be if that's what you were running on? Your campaign slogan would be, <laughs> it doesn't, that doesn't go well on a bumper sticker. These are unpopular ideas. You don't run on this stuff. What's happened when Republicans decided to unleash policies like this on Wisconsin is that Wisconsin said no. And Wisconsin, I believe, won. The Republicans lost the debate on this. It remains to be seen whether they will pull this off in terms of a policy coup. Legal action is underway to try to block what Republicans did in the blink of an eye last night. But overall, Republicans lost the argument in Wisconsin. Wisconsin won. Greg Sargent at the Washington Post got an advanced look today on the, at the Wisconsin Republican recall effort. According to a poll soon to be released by Survey USA, in the district of Republican Senator Dan Kopanke, Republican Senator, 57% of his constituents would now rather have someone else represent them in the state Senate, please. He is up for recall. In the district of Republican Senator Randy Hopper, 54% of his district would please rather have someone else represent them now. He's up for recall. That's not 54% of Democrats in the district. That's voters 
in the whole district. That's not Democrats. That's voters. That's everybody. That's everybody who just elected them in the first place just a couple of months ago. Facing that kind of political catastrophe of their own making in their own state. You want to know what Republican state senators in Wisconsin are planning for their next move? They literally ran out of the Wisconsin state capitol last night. They ran uh, after they voted on their big union stripping bill. Where were they running to? Washington, D.C., where Wisconsin's Republican senators will soon be holding a fundraiser for themselves in the offices of a corporate lobbyist, a corporate lobbying firm, a firm called BGR. I am not kidding. The facts have a humorless liberal bias in this case. Overwhelming numbers of humans are against what they're doing, but at least they can take corporate comfort at their lobbyist fundraiser in Washington. And I mean, that's who's had their back throughout, right? Right now, Wisconsin Republicans are being defended with ads nationwide run by Karl Rove's Crossroads Group, a group that does not disclose its funders. But what we do know of Crossroads is that their top disclosed funders are corporations and individual billionaires. Crossroads GPS is running ads to support the Wisconsin Republicans and to deride those rich, awful public sector workers who they vaguely but ominously assert are making 42% more than you, probably. All over Wisconsin, the billionaire Koch brothers and their organization, Americans for Prosperity, have also had the Republicans back, running an ad that intones against government workers getting rich and living high on the hog at the expense of everyone else. Again, that's the Koch brothers' Americans for Prosperity ad that has been running in Wisconsin. You know, there was um, really good news for the Koch brothers this week. Did you see that the new Forbes billionaires list came out? David and Charles Koch, probably the most aggressive and prolific right-wing activists in America today, individually they are each tied for 18th richest man in the world, and their combined fortune would rank them at number four, right behind Carlos Slim, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett. This isn't them moving up in the ranks. They would have been fourth in the world last year, too. But just in the past year, good news, David and Charles Koch saw their wealth increase by $9 billion in one year. That's how much it went up. And remember, they don't really work. They inherited an oil and chemical company from their papa, but they made $9 billion in the past year doing the hard work of inheriting something. So number one, Carlos Slim. Number two, Bill Gates, number three, Warren Buffett, number four, the combined wealth of the Koch brothers. But this list turned out to also be good news for those of us here at The Rachel Maddow Show, because coming in at number seven this year was Susie Jones, Kent Jones's mom, number seven on the billionaires list this year. She's a retired kindergarten teacher from Missouri. Way to go, Susie. Also number nine. She's apparently very secretive now, so no photo, uh, but it's my third grade public school teacher, Mrs. Marchant. She taught me third grade at Chabot Elementary in Castor Valley, California. Of course, she's been making off like a bandit ever since. Ninth richest person in the world. We're estimating her fortune at $27 billion. These public school teachers, I mean, you got to admire their wealth. But man, they are sucking us dry. In politics, if you are pursuing policies that mostly just redirect wealth and resources from the rest of the country to people who already have a lot, or policies that make things harder for people who have to work for a living, policies that transfer resources from public assets we all own and enjoy to something that only privately benefits a small number of people who frankly have already got a lot. Those sorts of policies, again, they hurt a large number of people to help a small number of people. 
And because of that, it takes great, top-notch, expensive political strategy to distract from the my side versus your side numbers problem that you've got in terms of support for a policy like that. And so what you get for distraction is the crisis strategy. That's what we got in, uh, in Wisconsin, right? Oh, I've been so looking forward to this. <clears throat> Ready? Does it work? Oh my God, oh my God, it's a crisis. Oh my God, oh my God, it's a crisis. We have a big budget deficit. We have a big budget crisis. We have to do really dramatic stuff to close the budget deficit. Do not ask us what we're going to do. There's no time. Can't you see it's a crisis? It's a crisis. I think you guys just want it to seem like a crisis. Otherwise you wouldn't in your first actions as governor, Scott Walker, have made the state's future budget deficit $140 million worse with business tax giveaways. But wait, but wait, it's a crisis, it's a crisis. The unions are sucking us dry. The unions are very, very, very bad for the budget. No, you want it to seem like it's a crisis. But when the unions made every financial concession you demanded of them, you turned those concessions down. But wait, but wait, it's a crisis. The existence of unions, the existence of unions themselves, that is the thing that is so expensive. No, you just want it to seem like a crisis. If the existence of unions themselves was so expensive, then why did you exempt the unions that supported you in the last election? Those unions have some of the most expensive benefits of any in your state, but you let them off. But wait, but wait, the protests against us, the protests themselves are a crisis. It's going to cost seven and a half million dollars to clean up all the horrible damage that they've caused. Right, seven and a half million dollars, or 95.3% less than that, depending on which day you asked and whether or not the governor wanted to make a crisis headline out of it that day or not. I mean, come on, remember the bond refinancing thing too? We have to end this right now or we won't be able to refinance our state debt. Remember that? They said the Democrats would have to return to the state by February 25th or the state wouldn't be able to refi. Millions of dollars would be lost. Turns out that wasn't really the deadline. They actually have until April to do it. And it turns out it costs money to refi anyway. It doesn't save them any money. So, you know, when we called it a crisis before, turns out we sort of just like the siren. Ah-ooh, ah There's no crisis. There's no crisis. The siren is awesome. There's no crisis. This is not about a crisis. This is not about the budget. This is not about bond refinancing. This is not about unions being expensive. This is about a massive reallocation of resources held in common by the citizens to corporations for their private gain. And it is about a tactical kneecapping of the political force that might resist that, that might resist what the Republicans are doing, a tactical kneecapping of the Democratic Party and its union base. The policies that Republicans in these states are pursuing right now are not popular. They, they attack people who work for a living, and most people work for a living. They attack the middle class, and they attack the institutions that make the middle class possible and that defend the middle class. The only problem the Republicans have got, the only roadblock in their way, the central weakness of their position is that, that whole, um, you might have heard of it, it's the one person, one vote thing, democracy. These policies that they're promoting benefit a few moneyed interests at the expense of a whole lot of humans. When you get national poll numbers that say 72% of people support firefighters' union rights, 66% of people support teachers' union rights nationally, that's not just liberals. This is a numerically unwinnable fight for anybody picking on firefighters and teachers like this. They may have the money on their side, but what they're up against is everyone who disagrees with them. They are pursuing policies that hurt way more people than they help. How do you get away with that in a one person, one vote system? You don't. So that's what they're going after next.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Now, I'm skipping voicemails today because I have two stories and one moral to get to today. So I'm going to get to those right away. Story number one, both of these came from emails, by the way. Story number one, uh, a a guy wrote in, this is several weeks ago, he wrote in requesting that I stop using a particular source for this show because he finds uh, not the content to be objectionable, but the dynamic between the two hosts to to be objectionable, basically. Uh, the show is hosted by a man and a woman. The man is, uh, you know, very politically engaged. You know, he's a national blogger um, and is can be very, very wonky, basically. And so his co-host is a woman who basically plays the role of balancing him out for as, as wonky and, uh, you know, like politics-oriented as he is. She is, you know, obviously still very smart, still engaged in politics, definitely cares about the issues, but she's more focused on kind of being humorous and more focused on uh, kind of playing the layperson counterpart to him so that she can stop him and ask, hey, can you explain that so that normal humans can understand when he gets a little bit too wonky? So this, uh, so this emailer wrote in to say that this dynamic between the two perpetuates sexist stereotypes against women by by putting a relatively uninformed woman next to a very informed man. And look, I get where he's coming from, but I totally disagree in, that, that bringing gender into this discussion is appropriate. Because to, to me, the dynamic of their show is uh, very standard and it's a very, very normal dynamic and it's a good one. It's one that works well. So I think that it can work in any combination of gender roles, basically. You know, two men could be like that, one very smart, one more funny. Uh, You know, uh, the woman could be much smarter and the man is there for, uh, you, you know, comic relief or the reverse where the man is the one who's very informed and the woman is there for comic relief. I think that it works perfectly well in any of those scenarios or two women. Sorry, that's the other combination. You know, it, it can work in very well in any of those scenarios and to say that using the particular one they have is then sexist because of, you know, the the history of that is is inappropriate and I think primarily so because of the context of the show. I mean, it's a liberal show where they, you know, do nothing but, you know, they're nothing but supportive of, you know, women's rights and full equality. So they should be given the benefit of the doubt that, you know, I think basically it would be absurd to imagine that they created this dynamic intentionally uh, because, you know, they, because they think that women are appropriately classified as inferior to men. I think that is absolutely just happenstance that he happens to be the blogger and she happens to be a friend of his who's funny. And, and that's how I think the show was created. And, uh, and so to call it sexist, I think is, uh, misguided and wrong, but I see where he's coming from. Story number two, I received an email from a woman who's very concerned about uh, some accuracy on the Rachel Maddow show. Uh, Rachel Maddow had a clip about the Wisconsin protests, the governor's uh, tax policy and the budget issues. And uh, and she said some things that I think came out eventually to be uh, 
technically correct, but that, uh, you know, very, you know, smart, intelligent, uh, agreeable people could agree were uh, slightly misleading. And I think unintentionally so, but I think that they were misleading. So anyways, this one wrote in very long, detailed email to me about, um, about this clip saying that she was very disappointed in Rachel Maddow for being wrong. And she was very disappointed in me for playing this clip that turned out to be wrong. Well, Rachel Maddow ended up defending herself on her own show, so I sent that clip of Rachel Maddow defending herself to this woman and said, okay, take a look at this. Now, are you still mad? And she said, well, okay, you know, maybe she's technically correct, but I still felt misled by it. And, and you know, as liberals, we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard of being exactly correct, not the least bit misleading. Otherwise, we're just the left version of Fox News, basically, was her point. And... And I agree. I agree with everything she said. I think uh, I, I love her passion for, you know, total honesty. I love that, you know, she wants to have all of our arguments based, uh, you know, very, very firmly on a foundation of truth. I think I think that she's completely on the right track in all of those ways. Um, for me, the key, the key to this conversation and, and the moral of these stories is that she wrote two relatively long emails to me, a podcaster who has no connection to Rachel Maddow whatsoever, um, about, about this issue. So that's, you know, so even though I agree with everything she says, uh, I responded to her, uh, primarily based on the fact that I thought it was inappropriate for her to be spending this much time emailing me, uh, about this issue. And so the moral that I'm going to get to on both of these stories is, is summed up in, um, I, I wrote to both of them and had, had this conversation back and forth, uh, with nuances and, you know, for both, but I, I concluded both conversations in essentially the same way. So I'm going to read one of, one of the messages, uh, that gets the point across pretty well. So I, I, I wrote, finally though, here's the real point I want to make. You only have a finite amount of energy you can dedicate to your interest and passion for politics. Even if you dedicated your whole life and every waking moment, you still only have a very limited amount of time to spend trying to make the world a better place. I want to encourage you to think deeply about the best way for you to spend the time you choose to dedicate to politics and then prioritize the actions you choose to take so you can have the greatest positive impact. I would sincerely hope that if you did this and followed through on your set of priorities, that you wouldn't have any time to spare to stress about whether people you agree with are being exactly as politically correct as you wish they were. We're all in a fight for our lives here, and a lot of the people fighting alongside of you aren't going to meet your moral and ethical standards, but any time you spend attacking them for their shortcomings is time not spent tearing down the wealthy, corrupt rulers of the world who are constantly sending poor people to war, preventing full access to affordable health care, funneling money to their rich friends and benefactors, actively working to crush the middle class, restricting women's rights and preventing them from reaching full equality, and preventing us from addressing climate change, which is likely to devastate us as a species, among many other things. Look, you're not wrong for being concerned about trying to keep people in line who agree with you. It just can't be something that rises to the level of importance and urgency that you've displayed in this conversation. So that, that, that's, you know, what I said. And to just kind of, you know, comment further, it's so 
it's so much easier to criticize people you agree with because those criticisms are going to land and you have a, a much greater possibility of impacting that person and getting them to move in, in a better direction based on your criticisms. What I'm saying is please, please remember, and you know this goes to these two people, but I'm saying it to everyone because every one of you listening to this, hopefully you turn around and you go out and you have some impact on the world, some political impact, whether you're you know a hardcore activist or you just occasionally have a conversation about politics around the water cooler. Uh, you know, you you really have to prioritize what you focus on because it's so easy to to get uh, you know uh, steered away from like a good set of liberal talking points to criticize someone who agrees ninety nine percent with you to to then say how they're not quite as good of a liberal as they could be basically and like there's an old like Western analogy about uh, circling the wagons. Politically speaking, when we're attacked, uh, conservatives, they circle the wagons, they get on the same page, they get their message straight, and they start shooting uh, to defend their territory. When liberals get attacked, we circle the wagons and we start shooting, but we're usually shooting towards the center of the circle of wagons. You know, it's really easy to think that you can push forward on every issue you care about. It's easy to think that you can, you know, you can care about pushing the progressive ideas forward and also care a lot about, uh, you know, keeping your fellow progressives in line and correcting them when they're not quite 100% right or or they're not quite 100% politically correct. You know, but you can't. It's so the the message I want to drive home more than anything is to remember you have a finite amount of energy that you can use to do everything in the world. <laughs> but speaking about politics, you only have a small amount of, of energy that you can dedicate to it. So when you do, when you're deciding what to do politically, uh, who you're going to write an email to, who you're going to engage with, what you're going to suggest that somebody do – because you have a finite amount of energy and the people you're talking to also have a finite amount of energy, make sure that you're really pushing on the highest priority issues first. If you can get through all your high priority issues and then you want to start nitpicking, then okay. Just don't start with the nitpicking. That's that's really all I'm saying because uh, when people agree with you, uh, almost entirely as as I do with uh, with these two people who wrote into me you know what you, what you end up doing more than anything is draining resources that could have otherwise been spent to do something good in the world so you know just that that point of thinking deeply about what you care about what you want to do what sort of change you want to make and then prioritize I think I really think that's the way to go. And that's what I try to do all the time. So that's it for today. I'm going to thank a couple of members really quick. Michael C signed up for a leftist membership, uh, a yearly membership that started back on September 9th. 
2009 uh, and has been sticking with the show since then. So huge thanks to Michael and Kathleen C signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on March 9th and has also stuck with the show since then. So huge thanks to Michael and Kathleen. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. You can donate tweets to us. If you have a Twitter account, uh, please go to bestoftheleft.com and uh, click through to, uh, to donate your tweet. It's all explained there. Very simple and easy. You can also just stay tuned into the show between episodes on Facebook and Twitter, as well as spreading the word about the show via both of those social networks. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right